Open your Bibles up this morning to Matthew chapter 4. That's going to be the text that we're in today. Uh, And really, this is the text that we're going to find ourselves in for quite some time to come. I know some of you have been wondering when I was going to start the next series here. Carlos has been going through Corinthians, and it's been very helpful. Uh, We were going together uh, through the Minor Prophets as well, and uh, we've been out of those books for quite some time and have been spending a couple of weeks just looking at the applications of the truth from the Minor Prophets to our daily lives from the book of 1 John, and now that we've kind of finished that section of practical application, I wanted to take us back to the Sermon on the Mount, which is a text and a passage that is really just uh, sometimes very familiar to us, but oftentimes overlooked because it, it is so familiar, but it contains such profound truth for us on the nature of life within the kingdom of God and what Christ expects from us as members in that kingdom. So I'm very much looking forward to going through this passage that is really a sequential presentation on a topic, on a number of different topics that will all be very practical to our lives for our instruction from the word of Christ himself. And we're going to be picking that up in August when we come back together again, but I thought for our time this morning, since we had this week intervening, it would be helpful to really set the context of where that study is going to be taking us and back up into Matthew chapter 4 and cover the better part of that chapter to really get a sense of what Jesus is going to be saying to us once we get to his greatest sermon in Matthew chapter 5. Now, this text was really a text that was first made known to me back in the seventh grade. I remember Mr. Laven's Bible class from seventh grade. I don't remember much from seventh grade, but I do remember that class. And the reason why is because he made us buy a brand new Bible and a set of colored pencils. And then our assignment every week was to go through the Gospels, really, and underline everything in the Gospels in a different colored pencil. Blue was for illustrations, and green was for sections on growth, red was for doctrine, purple was for parables, and on and on and on it went. We were to underline and highlight everything in the Gospels in different colors. I didn't know it, but he was teaching us hermeneutics, and it was a great assignment. But there were many different times throughout the text where there was one final thing we had to do as we read it and marked the text all up. We had to write the initials UDK in the margin next to any passage that presented something that didn't seem to be the way that it should be. And UDK stood for upside down kingdom, right? I know that sounds kind of weird. You're saying, okay, what does upside down kingdom mean? Well, what that's really talking about is something presented in scripture that doesn't seem the way it should be. It's the exact opposite of the way that the kingdom of this world works. And when I got to Matthew chapter five, next to nearly every single verse, I had to write in the margin, UDK, 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 because everything in this sermon is really completely opposed to the way that the kingdom of this world works. And the message of this sermon then is that that the kingdom of God works in an opposite way from the kingdom of this world. And was that not the message that we've already heard once this morning in the main service? I hope that you were all in there, but that was really the point that Nathan was driving home for us once already today, that the people of this world think 
very different from the people of God. The way that the world works is very different from the way that the kingdom of God works, that the reality in which we live is not really reality. If reality is to be defined by that which is eternal and that which is made by the creator, then everything around us and the way that the world works and thinks and operates is really upside down from reality. See, the kingdom of God is, in some sense, from our temporal perspective here on this earth, it is an upside-down kingdom. It is not at all would we, what we would expect. And for us to really get a sense of what God expects for us, we have to look at this Sermon on the Mount, which for the believer is really like the Magna Carta or the constitution of God's kingdom. It's what God expects from us as believers. It's the very cornerstone of the Christian life. It's, it's a picture of heaven re- heavenly reality for people who are seeking to live in an unreal world. And as we've seen already this morning from the book of 1 Corinthians, and as we'll see this morning from Matthew chapter 4, nothing about the two worlds match up. Again, the way that this world thinks does not square with the thoughts of God. And if we're thinking like the world, then nothing about the way that God works or what he expects will look like we expect it to. His expectations don't match up with the worldview of our culture. And so if we're surrounded by an unreal worldview, how do we get a good, solid reality check to know this is the way you are to live? How do we frame up our lives in light of eternity? Enter in the Sermon on the Mount where Christ makes that very clear and very plain for us. And really, in Matthew chapter 4, we're going to see three different scenes that prove the alternate reality of God's kingdom. They, they serve for us like a reality check that remind us to live in light of eternity and to listen to Christ's commands that are found in his greatest sermon. Three scenes that prove the alternate reality of God's kingdom. Bottom line, nothing is the way we would expect for it to be. That is the way that God's kingdom works. You see, it's different. It's not like this world. And that's going to be the point of the sermon. And that point is highlighted here for us in Matthew chapter 4. Now, as we dig into this, there's something that you need to understand. It's that Matthew presents all of the material in his book thematically. He doesn't necessarily present it all chronologically. The events in Matthew's narrative are not always presented chronologically. And when you compare the text of Matthew to other different gospels, you'll find that the chronology is a little bit different from the other Gospels. That doesn't make it any less true. That doesn't mean that Matthew was mistaken. It means that he was trying to do something intentional with the way that he presents the material. So for us to really get a good good sense of what's going on as we head into Matthew chapter 5, we have to understand the context that is chronological, what was going on in Jesus' life. And then we have to step back and look at the logical context to see why did Matthew present it not in the order that it actually happened. 
What was the point that he was trying to make? So let me hit both contexts here very briefly for us and set up this context for us together. So first, chronologically, where are we in Jesus's life as we think about the Sermon on the Mount? Here's what's going on. We're about a year into Jesus's ministry when we get down to Matthew chapter 5. You see, he was already at this point very close with four particular disciples, and he had a large number of disciples that had followed him. And in that first year of ministry, there was some opposition. The religious leaders were beginning to question, who is this guy and what's he actually talking about here? Because it doesn't seem to be matching up with what we know to be true. But all of that lack of heavy opposition, it changes very dramatically during the time of Passover in the year of 28 AD. And if you line up the gospel accounts like you can find in the volume One Perfect Life, where our pastor has harmonized all the texts of the gospels together, very helpful resource, incredible devotional reading. I would encourage you to get a copy of that. But if you go through that, here's what you'll find. You'll find that Immediately leading up to the Sermon on the Mount, there are a series of conflicts on back-to-back weeks where three Sabbaths in a row, Jesus essentially pokes, in the most sanctified possible way, the religious leaders of the day. He intentionally sparks conflict with them, Sabbath after Sabbath after Sabbath, to set up for them the reality that what they expected him to do is not at all what he was going to do. And the way his kingdom worked is not at all the way that they thought it was going to. And what God expects is not what they thought God expected. So on the first Sabbath during Passover, we find Jesus in the city of Jerusalem. And we find in John chapter 5 that he heals a lame man on that specific Sabbath day, which was in direct violation of the Pharisees' religious law. He heals the lame man, and the Jews, the narrative goes on really for more than a chapter, where the Jews come back to the lame man and say, who dared to do this to you? And the lame man says that it was Jesus. And the Jews, therefore, were told, sought to kill him, not only because he broke the Sabbath, but also said that God was his father, making himself equal with God. That was strike one on the first Sabbath. You fast forward a week, and Mark comes back and tells us that on the very next Sabbath, Jesus does it again. He's letting his disciples pick grain as they walk through the fields. And again, for the second Sabbath in a row, the Pharisees come unglued. And they essentially say to Jesus, look, look at what your people are doing. How can you let them do this? Don't you know that they're breaking the law? And Jesus begins to instruct them again that the nature of your law is not the same as the nature of God's law. Luke then comes back and tells us that on the following Sabbath, After having left Jerusalem, now going back up to Galilee, having been threatened by the Pharisees, Jesus goes into a synagogue to begin to teach. This is now three Sabbaths in a row. And the Pharisees are now seeking to try intentionally to trip him up. And they say to him, they ask him a question where they think they're going to get him for sure. They say, is it lawful for you to heal on the Sabbath? What they should have been concerned with is the fact that he could heal on any day of the week, but they were tripped up on the the idea that you're doing this on a Sabbath day. And Jesus, I love the text there in Luke, he basically says, yep, watch this. He says, see that man over there with a withered hand? Stand up, come over here. And he heals him. 
And then he responds after having healed him with a question that says, what are you talking about? Is it lawful to do good or to save a life at any point? Of, and his point is, of, of course it is. And the text tells us that then the Pharisees were filled with rage and they went out and plotted against him and discussed what they might do to Jesus, how they might destroy him. We're told by the various gospel accounts that it's after that point that Jesus withdraws to Galilee and his entire ministry shifts gears. And that, chronologically, is now where Matthew picks up his story with a very thematic introduction. We find that in Matthew chapter 4, verse 12. It says, Now when Jesus heard that John the Baptist had been taken into custody, he withdrew into Galilee. Okay, that's the chronological background of what's going on as we head into Matthew chapter 4. Now, Matthew in chapter 4, verses 12 through 25, stitches together a couple of different accounts that did not necessarily happen back to back or in this order. But you have to ask yourself the question, okay, if Matthew's not recording things chronologically, why is he recording things in the order that he's recording things? Did he make a mistake? Answer's clearly no, right? He had to be doing that on purpose. So why did he choose to record the three accounts that we're going to see in Matthew 4, 12 through 25? Why did he record these ones in this order at this point in his book? What's the point he's trying to make by setting up these different accounts here in this text? And the point is really very clear. He wants to show how that Jesus, after having been opposed by the religious leaders, he goes back to Galilee and he begins to make arrangements to introduce the idea of his kingdom to his followers. And so what you see happening here in verses 12 through 17 is Jesus presenting his message. In, in verses 18 through 22, it's Jesus choosing his followers. In verses 23 through 25, it's Jesus validating his message through his works, right? At every point, Jesus is beginning to prove the fact that this is the way my kingdom is. This is how it works. Get ready. I'm going to explain it to you. And that's exactly what he does in Matthew chapters 5 through 7 in the Sermon on the Mount. So these three different scenes that you see happening here in Matthew's four, in Matthew 4, 12 through 25, these three scenes they prove the way that God's kingdom works. Matthew is starting to show that Jesus is starting to introduce the concept of his kingdom. So we have to back up to Matthew chapter 4, verse 12, to really get a good running start to understand the impact of what's going to come in Matthews 5 through 7. What we find here is that Jesus goes to an unknown city, he essentially begins to proclaim an unexpected message. He then calls to himself a bunch of very unusual followers, and then he starts to do some really unexpected, uncommon stuff. Do you see a theme in what I'm describing here? Everything about what Jesus does as he starts to introduce the idea of his kingdom, it is unexpected, it is uncommon, it is unusual. Nothing is as you would expect for it to be. He is directly preparing us for the reality check that is going to come to us in this great sermon found in chapters 5 through 7. 
So why does Jesus start to do things that are unexpected? Why does he start to choose followers that are unusual? Why does he start to take actions that are uncommon? It's to show these people that the way God's kingdom works, it works in a way that demonstrates an alternate reality to everything you know to be true about this world's here. It is God's reality, and therefore it is the only reality that matters. So these three scenes prove the alternate reality of God's kingdom. First, let's look at each scene and break it down. The first one we see here is a reality check that comes from the unexpected message, and we find this in verses 12 through 17. Now, when Jesus heard that John had been taken into custody, he withdrew into Galilee. And leaving Nazareth, he came and settled in Capernaum, which is by the sea in the region of Zebulun and Naphtali. This was to fulfill what was spoken through Isaiah the prophet, the land of Zebulun, the land of Naphtali, by the way of the sea, beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. The people who were sitting in darkness saw a great light. And those who were sitting in the land in the shadow of death, upon them a light dawned. And from that time, Jesus began to preach and say, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The first reality check that we get here in Matthew 4 is the reality check that comes from the unexpected message. Now, there's a bunch of things going on in these verses that are all very unexpected as it relates to the message that Jesus is bringing. The first thing we see here is that the location of this message is very unexpected. As Jesus withdraws into Galilee, it's not a, it's not a fearful withdrawal. Rather, it's a strategic withdrawal. He, he intentionally is going to a place where no one would expect for him to go. He's going back to Galilee, right? I mean, you were already in Jerusalem. That's where, if you want to change the world, that's where you're going to do it. You're going to do it in Jerusalem where the movers and the shakers are. Where you're not going to do it is back up in Galilee where there's no one who is of any significance and no place that's of any significance at all. You're you're not going to change the world from Galilee. And yet, that's where Jesus goes. He withdraws into Galilee in order to introduce the message of his kingdom. Why would he do that? This was very unexpected for these people, and they they couldn't believe it. John chapter 7, verse 41 says, it expresses the astonishment of the religious rulers where they say, surely the Christ is not going to come from Galilee, is he? So the fact that Jesus would go back to Galilee to introduce the nature of his kingdom to all the horde of people that were listening is is very unexpected. Verse 13 tells us that not only does he go to Galilee, but he goes and he settles in Capernaum, which is by the sea in the region of Zebulun and Naphtali. Now Capernaum, it was a small little fishing village there on the coast of the Sea of Galilee. It's about two miles west of where the upper Jordan River enters into the Sea of Galilee. It's nestled right up against the shoreline, and ancient sources tell us that there may have been as many as 10,000 people who lived in that town in Jesus' day. It's a thriving fishing village, but it's no more than that, right? It's not more than a village. It's It's not a metropolis. It's not a huge city. It's just this fishing village that's there on the shore of the Sea of Galilee. Now, you can still go there today. Archaeology and uh, historians know exactly where the city of the, the village of Capernaum is, and you can stand there on that seashore, and it's, it's one of the most powerful places in Israel because it's quiet. 
It's not disturbed by massive cathedrals. It, it pretty much is exactly the way it was in Jesus' day. And you can still stand there on that shore and, and you can hear the lazy waves lapping up against the shoreline, the blue water stretching out in front of you, mountains surrounding the sea on all sides. It's a warm, dry, dusty spot. And it is an incredible experience to stand there at a sunrise or a sunset and to see the light dawning over the land where Jesus himself once stood. You can still go there. But what will strike you when you do go there is that you are in the middle of nowhere, right? This is no place to go and found the kingdom of heaven. And yet that's where Jesus goes. And we have to ask ourselves the question, why does the text make such a big deal about him going to Capernaum, which is by the sea? This is like a lobbyist going to Des Moines, Iowa to change the president's mind. You're going the wrong direction. This is not how it works. You see, it was unexpected. And that very unexpected nature of what he did was the point. It was God's plan. Jesus begins to establish the kingdom by demonstrating that he wasn't going to do it in the way that they expected for him to do it. He was going to do it in the way that the scriptures prescribed for him to do it. They expected for it to come in Jerusalem, but instead he does it in Capernaum, next to nowhere, this tiny sleeping fishing village. Why? Because it's in direct fulfillment of an ancient prophecy. Look at what verse 14 says. This was to fulfill what was spoken through Isaiah the prophet, the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, by the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. It's in that spot where the people who were sitting in darkness will see a great light. See, the city of Capernaum was founded after this text was written by the prophet Isaiah. So Isaiah doesn't name the spot, but he describes it better than it could possibly be described. You see, Capernaum is right in the middle of the land of Zebulun and Naphtali. It is nestled right up against the shore of the sea. It is two miles just beyond the Jordan, and it was certainly known in Jesus' day as being Galilee of the Gentiles. Capernaum was the spot. Isaiah had foretold it, and that's exactly where Jesus goes to the shock and astonishment of everyone who is listening. You see, the location of his message was unexpected. And and as we go on in this text, we also find that the audience of the message is unexpected as well. I mean, look at the prophetic description of these people. They were sitting in darkness. They were deluded by their blind hearts. They were depraved in the depths of their souls. And they were despondent without any sense of clear hope. And the emphasis here in this text is on their utter hopelessness. And it's upon them that the light of the person of Christ, the light of heaven, dawns. The people who were sitting in deluded, depraved, hopeless darkness saw a great light. This week, I was driving around town a little bit. A couple weeks ago, there was a certain driver, whose gender will, will remain nameless, who decided to use the PCH as her personal bowling alley. And one of my vehicles was one of the vehicles in her path, and she managed to thoroughly wreck it. It was great. But I had to take it to the body shop this week and have it repaired. And there was a rental car agency who came to pick me up from the body shop and bring me back over to the rental car agency to get a loaner car for the next three weeks while my car is fixed. And as I was driving through Van Nuys with the worker from that rental car agency, 
I was amazed just, I mean, he was very chatty. He talked all 15 minutes that we were together, talking about his life and what, how he thinks about life and politics. And I, I could barely get a word in edgewise. He was telling me everything about himself. And it was, it was fine, but as I was listening to him, it struck me how dark his life was. He had no conception of reality, no conception of truth, no conception of any kind of hope or point to life at all. And he was just chatting away and talking about how difficult his life is. And I was struck by the darkness of it. And after about 14 minutes as we're turning the corner into the rental car agency and he's told me all about his job and his life and his plans, he says, so what do you do? I said, well, I'm a pastor and I oversee a, a, a seminary. And he said, oh, we're here. And he jumped out of the car. <laughs> but I was just struck by people that without the reality of Christ, they are lost in their darkness. They are deluded and they are hopeless. They need the light of the dawn of Christ to enter into their minds and come through their eyes to enliven their heart. And that's the emphasis of this text right here. You see, Jesus came to a people that were, that were very unexpected for him to come to. I mean, if you were going to come and change the world, you would go to the people who had some idea of what they were talking about. You would come to people who already had some sense of an idea about how, about how this should really work. But no, when Jesus comes, he comes to a people who are sitting around in darkness, people who are sitting in the land in the shadow of death. And he says, the light has now dawned. It's here. The king is here. You go back to this prophecy that's found in Isaiah chapter 9, and, and the back half of that prophecy, this is ver what's recorded here is Isaiah 9, 1, and 2. If you go to, back to Isaiah chapter 9, verses 6 and 7, you'll find that the prophecy continues, and when the light comes, we're told that he would be a wonderful counselor. He would be a mighty God. He would be their eternal father. He would be the prince of peace. You see, their king had come and he had come to a place and a people that showed the reality very clearly that God's priorities don't match up with man's priorities. And that is exactly what Jesus begins to say to them in verse 17. From that time on, after having been opposed and retreating up into Galilee and going to an unexpected place and unexpected people, Jesus now rolls out his unexpected message. He says, from that time on, Jesus began to preach and say, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And I love this verse, not just because I'm a preacher, but because it's very powerful. I love that word there, that Jesus began to preach. It's the Greek word keruso. It's a word that means to be a herald of someone. It's a word that means to publish or to loudly proclaim. It's what we think of when we think of good, solid preaching. It's the announcement of something certain and real, and the message that he brings is unexpected, and it's powerful, and it's, it's powerful primarily because it was not what they thought they were going to hear when the Messiah came. His message was... Repent. You need to turn away from your sinfulness for the kingdom of God is coming and, and reality is here if you would just listen. But that was totally opposed to what they had been preconditioned to expect. You see, he begins to reveal that the kingdom of God, it's an internal spiritual kingdom. And only after it has taken 
root in the hearts of men will it physically manifest itself in a literal kingdom someday off in the future. And, and those people chopped off the first half about the spiritual repentance and the spiritual internal heart of the kingdom. And they wanted to jump straight to the second half of bring your physical kingdom here now. Sit on the throne and kick out the Romans. What Jesus' message is for these people, it's, it's an unexpected reality check. He's saying God's kingdom doesn't work like the world expects it to. And that's going to be the point of Christ's great sermon. He's going to make statements like, folks, the first shall be last and the last shall be first. This is the first reality check. God does his work amongst the lowly people and not in the way that we would expect for him to do it. His his kingdom, his expectations, his actions, his commands, they don't line up with the expectations of this world. They're distinct. They're unexpected. And so if you think that God is going to work in the way that the world expects him to, you too will be sorely disappointed just like these people. If you believe that you can blend in with the activity of this world and fulfill your calling as a member of his kingdom, you'll be sorely mistaken. And if you try to approach the kingdom of God from a humanistic, rational mindset, you'll be sorely disappointed. That is the point of Jesus' sermon in Matthew 5 through 7. And Matthew is setting us up for that fact here in this brief scene. God doesn't work in the way we think he'll work. His ways are not our ways. His thoughts are not our thoughts. And here in this text, we find that an unexpected message given in an unexpected place to an unexpected people has an unexpected impact. And that is reality check number one. It's that God's kingdom doesn't line up with what the world expects for it to be. The reality check continues in the second scene here in verses 18 through 22. Because not only is their reality checked by an unexpected message, it's also checked by a set of very unusual, colorful characters, right? The cast of characters that Jesus chooses to support this gospel drama is probably not what you would have expected if you worked in a casting agency, right? Look at verses 18 through 22. Now, as Jesus was walking by the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, who was called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And he said to them, follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. Immediately, they left their nets and followed him. Going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, in the boat with Zebedee, their father, mending their nets, and he called them. And immediately they left, the, they left the boat and their father and followed him. Now again, this story does not happen chronologically with the story that came before and the one that comes immediately after. So why does Matthew put it here? He puts it here because he's trying to highlight that just like the message was unexpected, the followers that Jesus chooses were also very unexpected and unusual as well. Very, very strange behavior here if your mission is to change the world. First thing we see in this next scene is that the nature of Jesus' followers is very unusual. He goes and he picks a bunch of fishermen to be his closest associates. Now, if you go to Israel today, there is a spot, maybe, I don't know, five miles around the coast from the city of Capernaum, 
where there was actually an old ancient fishing boat discovered that dates from the very first century AD, just from around the time of Christ. And there was a certain period of time, maybe 20, 30 years ago, where the land of Israel had a drought. The water in the Sea of Galilee receded way out off the shore, and it revealed there, stuck in the ancient mud, this ancient fishing boat that was 2,000 years old. And archaeologists managed to pull it out, preserve it, and it's now on display. And they've, they've taken wood samples and borings from every different part of that boat. And what they discovered is that that boat had been patched more than three dozen times. Different kinds of woods that had different kinds of datings where the boat had been patched multiple different times by different people. And what that reveals to anybody studying that boat is that being a fisherman was really hard work, Right? You had to not only patch your nets, you had to patch your boats. If you don't patch your nets, you don't catch anything. If you don't patch your boat, you die. (laughs) Pretty obvious. But being a fisherman was not an easy life. And that's who Jesus goes and picks. The nature of his followers is extremely unusual. You see, these men were not total strangers to him. Jesus had run into Peter and Simon back in John chapter 1 while they were still disciples of John the Baptist, and he was related distantly to James and John. These men were not strangers, and therefore Jesus knew that these men were also not world beaters. It's not that these men were ignorant. They weren't stupid. They weren't illiterate. They weren't, but they were rough and tumble. They were hard workers, they were strong, they were vibrant, but they were not elites. They were not worthy to stand in the court of a heavenly king, much less the court of an earthly king. These were just normal, middle-class guys, like most of us. But tradition has established Peter's home in Capernaum. And and while he wasn't an insignificant pauper who was scraping for a living, he was just a modestly successful businessman in a physically active profession. And you say to yourself, if you had to choose some followers to make your message happen and to get your point across, why would you choose these guys? Because not only is their very nature unorthodox and unusual, but their occupation is as well. Jesus here in this text catches them in the act of casting their nets. And there's two different kinds of nets being talked about here in this text. The first that Peter and Andrew, or Simon and Andrew, Peter, Peter and Andrew are casting our our small nets, maybe nine feet in diameter with weights around the edges, and you could cast it either from shore or off from a boat, and the weights would sink, catch fish, and you'd pull it back up. But the nets that are being talked about there in verses 21 that are being mended with uh, James and John, are they're, they're, it's more like a drag net, a large net that you would drag around a huge area off the back of a boat. You see, these men are very, I mean, it's presented very actively that they are active fishermen. It's not that they're retired fishermen. It's not that they are uh, fishermen who found huge success and are now tycoon fishermen. No, these are, these are active fishermen literally in the act of fishing when Jesus comes to them. They were in this well-established industry. And, and notice the intentionality of Jesus there in verse 18. It, it tells us that Jesus goes to Peter and to Andrew. Why? The end of verse 18, because they were fishermen. He chose a bunch of fishermen very intentionally. And you say, that's unusual. Why did he do that? Why did he pick them on purpose because of their occupation? Well, again, this is in direct fulfillment of prophecy. Turn with me in your Bible to Jeremiah chapter 16. Jeremiah 16. This is a little-known prophecy 
that is very often overlooked. But you ask yourself the question, why is Jesus choosing to work in such a bizarre way? It's to demonstrate that the kingdom of God doesn't work like we expect it to work. He takes this unusual step of choosing some fishermen, and he does it on purpose. Jeremiah 16, 16 tells us that when the Messiah comes to restore his people, what's he say in verse 16? Behold, I am going to send for many, what? Fishermen, declares the Lord, and they will fish for them. And afterwards, I will send for many hunters, and they will hunt them from every mountain and every hill, from the clefts of the rock, to bring them back, is his point. Now, that is foreshadowing, but Jesus takes it literally here and says, I want to make sure that no one misses the point. And he goes out and he collects for himself a bunch of fishermen. And what does he say to them? He says, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. Not at all what you would expect for the kingdom of God as it's being rolled out, but in God's providence, it's exactly what had been prescribed. The nature of these followers is unusual. The occupation of these followers is unusual. And even the way that Jesus calls these men here in this text is unusual. He doesn't invite them to come. He doesn't ask them to come. And he certainly doesn't beg them to come. Look at what he says there. He says, follow me. It's, it's framed up as an unapologetic, unconditional demand. This is very very unusual. If you're going to convince people to give up their livelihood, give up their life, and follow you to who knows where, you might think about rolling out a case for them for why they should do that. You might think about trying to convince them. You might want to ask them. You might want to offer them some kind of compensation. But Jesus does none of that. He demands of them, follow me, and this is what I will do for you. I will make you a fisher of men. There's a call to leave family comfort behind in these people's minds, the kingdom was supposed to make them all better, and here they discover that it's going to cost them, and cost them it did. We find, as we keep going down in this text, that Jesus goes on and he, he calls James and John. There's a big deal there in that verse made about them being the sons of Zebedee. And you ask yourself the question, why does that matter? It matters because by tying these men to their father Zebedee, we find out that by following Jesus, these men gave up an awful lot. Mark tells us that Zebedee's servants filled in the spots that his sons left. And on top of that, the apostle John was also well-known through family connections to the high priest, indicating that Zebedee was a well-known figure with a business that was quite successful. You see, by following Jesus, these guys are all walking away from a life that was seemingly made in the shade. And yet they, in verse 22, immediately left the boat and their father and followed him. Why? Because they knew who this was. He had told them who he was back in the Gospel of John chapter 1. And their awareness of Christ caused them to respond correctly. They saw the light as it dawned upon the people sitting in great darkness, and they followed. But here's the point, and here's the reason why Matthew includes this story here. Because if your objective is to turn the world upside down, why would you choose blue-collar fishermen to drop everything and come to prepare for the greatest mission impossible that the world has ever seen? The answer 
is to prove the point that this kingdom does not operate the way that you would expect it to operate. And that's reality check number two for us. God doesn't use the same kinds of people to advance his kingdom as the world expects him to use. The kingdom isn't like earthly kingdoms. That's the point that Matthew's trying to drive across. It's 1 Corinthians 1, 26-29, which we've already heard this morning. He says, not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble, but God has chosen the foolish things to shame the wise, and he's chosen the weak things to shame those things that are strong, so that no man may boast before God. Here's the point. God chooses unusual people to advance his kingdom. Then he lays a new demand on them, and that too should stand as a reality check for us. Not only does he bring an unknown, unexpected message that is contrary to the way that this world functions, but he also uses unusual people to spread it, people like you and me. And if you've been called by him, then you're going to be having to live according to a set of standards that is also unusual by the world's expectations. His message is unexpected, his people are unusual, and that is by design. Because if you're going to live within this kingdom then you're going to have to live in an alternate reality that isn't anything like anything else in this world. And that is going to be the point of the Sermon on the Mount in chapters 5, 6, and 7. Reality check comes to these people and by extension to us by the unexpected nature of the message, by the unusual nature of the followers. Then there's a third scene given to us, a reality check that is brought by Jesus' uncommon actions in verses 23 through 25. We're told that Jesus was going throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every kind of disease and every kind of sickness among the people. The news about him spread throughout all Syria and they brought to him all who were ill, those suffering with various diseases and pains, demoniacs, epileptics, paralytics, and he healed them all. Large crowds followed him from Galilee and the Decapolis and Jerusalem and Judea and from beyond the Jordan. You say, well, okay, what's the point of that story, that text being here just before the Sermon on the Mount? Again, It's to show that Jesus' actions were not the actions that you would expect. They were uncommon actions. You see, Jesus doesn't strut into a palace. He doesn't settle down upon a comfy, cushy throne and summon his servants to do his dirty bidding. Where does he go? Capernaum. He calls some fishermen together, and then he starts taking action. Look at all the active words there in verse 23. He is going, he is teaching, he's proclaiming, and he's healing. And look at all the dirty words there in that verse. Disease, sickness, illness, suffering, diseases, pains, demoniacs, epileptics, paralytics. And what's the text say? He healed them all. He doesn't go to a place where things are comfortable He doesn't go and do what you think most kings would do. In establishing his kingdom, he goes to those who have the greatest and most profound levels of need, and he ministers to their most basic, fundamental humanity. He goes to them. He teaches them. He proclaims to them, and he heals them. 
He goes all around the area, the text tells. It's an, it's an area that measures 30 by 60 miles. It's easy to move around. And he's going to people, explaining the truth, declaring it, meeting their needs. This is not the normal behavior of a king. Again, instead of going to the rich and famous, instead of crushing the powerful empires of the world, where does he go? To the poor, to the needy. And he begins to serve their needs at every level. Uncommon, unexpected by its Commonness. See, he came and he was compassionate. And the results of his actions are uncommon. Not only is the nature of his action uncommon, but the results of his action are uncommon. It says that the news grows essentially to the extent of the entire Roman province of Syria. And I mean, just imagine this with me. It wasn't easy to travel in those days. You didn't jump into your Ford Explorer and drive your sick relative to Henry Mayo ER, right? I mean, think about this here. How do you get a paralytic to travel 80 miles when you have to walk the whole way? How do you corral a madman and keep him on the road without a vehicle? How do you chain up a demon-possessed man and drag him to the next county over? How do you get a demon-possessed man on foot down to Orange County? But to these people, what Jesus was doing and coming to them was so uncommon, it was so unusual that it was worth it to them. And the text tells us that the people came and they came in droves. The news about him begins to grow. The impact that he's making begins to grow as he comprehensively addresses all the issues amongst the people. You see there the spiritual needs and the demoniacs. You see the mental needs and the epileptics. You see the physical needs and those who are paralyzed. The results of all that healing were amazing. They not only validated this man's message as being true and from God, but the results were so good that they were hard to believe as being true. And therefore, the followers began to grow as well. Large crowds, verse 25, followed him from all the surrounding regions and from far away. They begin to believe. They begin to follow they begin to find salvation for their souls in the process. And what they're discovering as they come to hear him speak is that the kingdom that the Messiah had come to inaugurate, the light that he brought to them in their dark place was unlike anything else that they had been expecting. This is then the third reality check that sets up the Sermon on the Mount. When the king came, not only did he come to an unexpected place, and choose unexpected people, but he started doing uncommon things. Things that would not only validate who he was and the message that he brought, but actions that would show the distinction that the power of the kingdom that he came to present was not like the power that the Gentiles had and used to lord it over them. See, those scenes are all put where they're put very much on purpose. And they're put there very much on purpose by Matthew, specifically for the purpose of introducing the Sermon on the Mount, which will be to them and as it is to us, a manifesto of a kingdom that seems to be of an upside down world to the way that we'd expect it to be. You see, in reality, we live in the world that is upside down from the way that it's supposed to be. And the message that is brought in Matthews 5 through 7 is a reality check that's meant to orient us to the way the kingdom of heaven is. That is the only reality for those of us who know Christ. That is the only reality for those of us who own membership in that kingdom. That is the only standard by which we must live. 
So it is not the upside-down kingdom, the one in which God resides. It is the only kingdom. It is the right-side-up kingdom, and the world in which we live is the upside-down kingdom. This, for us, is reality. Let's close in a word of prayer. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your text and for your kingdom that does govern our lives. We know that our membership is in it, that we are as those who are elect exiles and aliens to this world. You have chosen the foolish things of this world to shame those who would claim to be wise, that your kingdom is not like the world in which we live. And so, Father, may we, as we seek to prioritize our lives, live according to the priorities of your kingdom and not the world that surrounds us. May that be our heart and our passion. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, I finished two minutes early on purpose because I'm going to take them both because I wanted to say goodbye to Leanna and Natalie Coates, who are going to be leaving in July on Independence Day, right? So we have been very glad to have you guys with us. You've been a faithful part of our group. We're so thankful to have you. Why don't you guys come up and let me pray for you as you go? I know Leon preached for us a couple weeks ago, and he's going to be heading out here soon. So grateful for them and for their ministry, and just want to be faithful to send you on your way with the Lord's blessing, okay? Let me pray. Father, again, we do thank you for Leon and for Natalie and for their ministry here to us, the encouragement that the testimony of their lives, that their ministry has been to us as they've been here, the encouragement that it's been to see them in their growth as they prepared for future ministry. And we just pray now that as they go out, that you would speed their way to the field that you have called for them. That field is white unto harvest. It's waiting for their ministry. And we pray that you would make their ministry there impactful, that there would be souls who are saved, that there would be people brought into your kingdom who did not know the glory of the light of Christ in the past, and that you would use the work of these dear souls to do that specifically now. So we pray that you would use them mightily as they go back to the UK, that you would pave the way before them and make all the arrangements necessary. Bless them, bless their ministry, keep their daughter Sophie healthy. We're grateful for all that you've done in and through them as they've been here. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.